Today, we're going through uh, all of that reading that we just had and the one that Matt read out before. We're balancing out last week, you could say. Uh, last week, we did four verses, the opening four verses of Luke's Gospel. Now we're doing 41 verses this week. Uh, and so um, there's all good reasons for that. I'm not going to bother explaining them except for to say that uh, there is lots of stuff in what we're going through today. You know, if you've got one of those scripture journals or if you're going to have one, this is a great place to just bog in some time. Uh, terminology, I should update it. But um, uh, yeah, like there's, there's loads in this passage that we're not even going to touch on today that's really, really quite significant. Uh, stuff like, like we talked last week about how Luke, I think we mentioned this, Luke really emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit. And we get that heavily in this passage. Uh, as, as, as John will be filled with the spirit from his mother's womb and, and Mary, uh, Elizabeth is filled with the spirit and the, the baby is filled with the spirit when Mary comes and visits. And, and, and we're not even going to touch on that today because we have so much to get through. But just take in mind, if you sit down and read this passage, there's so much more in here than we're going to hit on today. We're going to hit the, the mountaintops uh, of the, the big things and we're going to leave it for you to dig into this. And I encourage you, dig into it. There's so much there. Um, Having said that, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get into this in earnest, okay? Uh, Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for the joy it is to have your word, Lord. Uh, it is a near unbelievable reality, and yet we believe it, Lord, that the God of the universe uh, wrote a book uh, through human authors, Lord, uh, through the actions of, of, of people, real people, Lord, you have written your words for us uh, to, to read and to grow by and to know you by. And so, Lord, we pray that today we would grow under the power of the word of God. Amen. Uh, so, uh, opening confession time. Um, yeah, I, I do this a bit, I think. But um, uh, I overthink things a bit. Now, now, don't take this to be a universal reality of my life. If you've known me for very long, you also know that I underthink things quite a bit as well. Uh, hence the times when we, for instance, haven't had the slides here. Um, hello, Billy. Uh, you all right? Okay, we're going to keep going. Uh, <laughs> probably the prime example for me would be um, when I'm preparing for a party or for people to come over. I assume this is somewhat relatable to you. You've probably had people in your house before. Um, and particularly, though, if it's a party, there seems to be something about parties. There's this moment of extreme tension for me as I overthink it. Uh, so, so there's the bit where you're getting ready, and, and typically I'll leave more getting ready than is healthy till the last minute, till the last day. And, and so the getting ready time will continue on, continue on, and pre preparations are happening. We're getting the food, we're getting the drink, we're getting everything together. Uh, and then we get to the time when the preparations finish, which for me is typically exactly the time when people also ought to show up slash potentially just a little bit later. Um, and sometimes quite a bit later, but we'll ignore that. Uh, and then you enter into what we would call the wait, right? Because I don't know if you've noticed, people are late for parties. Maybe it's just because you all are inconsiderate. I don't know. But, uh, and, and you enter into the time where you are waiting there's the silence and that's where i overthink things because i sit there and i go they should be here are they coming i don't come on we've, 
we've got all this food, you know, no one's going to arrive really. And it feels like 400 years to me goes by in what is essentially five minutes. Um, not just essentially, actually five minutes. Uh, and then, and then you, you get to that, that, that refreshing moment when, or maybe, you know, before that you, you hear a car go past and you're like, they're here, they're not here, that's just a car. Uh, and, then, and then eventually a car pulls up out the front and you go, that sounds like it's in front of our house. And, 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 you, and you listen like carefully, you're on the other side of the door and you definitely don't actually do that. Don't. But, um, and, and you hear the click of the, the, the latch on the gate as someone comes in. You hear the footsteps on the path and then eventually that definitive sign that someone has actually arrived and knock on the door. And hopefully it's not someone with a delivery or something. Uh, but, sorry. You can invite them to your parties. Um, that, kind of, that moment of tension there uh, is kind of like where we're up to in the story of redemptive history when we join the story of Luke today. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, God sent prophets. God spoke to his people. When he not only spoke to them, he made promises to them throughout history. Promises that did not actually reach their full fruition in the times of the Old Testament. He promised Abraham, for instance, that he would have a descendant through which all of the families of the earth would be blessed. He promised David that his descendant would reign on the throne forever. These things did not see their full fruition in the Old Testament, particularly in the time immediately surrounding the exile of Israel late in the Old Testament. Uh, we get this real immense buildup of expectation. Uh, prophetic words, this, this huge moment is coming, these preparations are happening that seem like they're building to something. God is going to act in such a way that outstrips what he's done today. And at the end of the Old Testament, there's this, uh, there's this note of expectation that feels like this is the moment, right? This is, this is when it's going to happen. As the prophet Malachi, if you want to skip there, it's the last page of the Old Testament, uh, Malachi, in chapter 4 of Malachi, he speaks these words to the people of God. He writes, but for you, this is Malachi, I'm going to read 2, 4, and 5, the verses of chapter 4. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise. That's son, S-U-N. The son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and behold... I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And from there, there's this expectation, isn't there, that the son of righteousness is about to dawn. God is going to come in great power to save his people. He will send one more prophet ahead of himself, as he comes, in the power of Elijah, he says, before the great moment comes. And it's like at that point the party's set, right? All the stuff's on the table. And, uh, and then silence. There's this quiet. And unlike my silence that feels like 400 years, this is actually 400 years. Uh, 400 years without a prophetic whisper. You know, there's this gap between where your Old Testament ends and your New Testament begins of 400 years. It's a long time. You know? 
Uh, and where, where we join the story today is the moment that the gate clicks and the footsteps come onto the path. Uh, we're in the bit where just before the big thing happens, just before the arrival, the silence and the waiting, they're dramatically broken today as God speaks again to his people in a sudden build-up of expectation. As it becomes apparent that that rising of the sun of righteousness, that's just about to happen and we're in the glow before the dawn. And in this moment of the pre-dawn glow, we get, uh, we get two stories and two songs. Uh, and the, the two stories are what we're going to look at this week and the two songs are what we're going to look at next week. The two stories are the story of the announcement to Zechariah of the coming of John the Baptist and the announcement to Mary of the coming of Jesus. And these two stories, they draw in a lot of ways a sharp contrast with each other, which is what we're going to look at in a large part today. Let's get into them. Uh, so, so what do we get about this guy, Zechariah? If you don't have a Bible open, feel free to make this the moment that you open it. Scripture journals count. We get quite a bit about him, really, uh, like more than you get about the average person in the Bible, uh, especially for someone who, who drops out of the story by, by chapter 3, 2 even. Uh, Zechariah is a priest. His wife is in the line of Aaron, the high priest, the first high priest. The priests were those who conducted the temple worship of Israel uh, with, with the intention of, of bringing the people to God, uh, acceptably to God. And these two were, they were righteous before God, we read. Not, not perfect, but they earnestly sought to follow God's law in a way that was more than Pharisaic. You know, they, they, from the heart, they wanted to follow God. But there's this tension as well. They have no child. In fact, the, the wording's much more direct than that. Elizabeth is barren. Now, that's, that's a big deal today. Uh, anyone could tell you. Uh, I'm sure I don't need to tell you. But it's not, not a big deal compared to how it was a big deal in the day of Elizabeth. In Elizabeth's day, it was a huge issue for a woman to be barren. In fact, it was often looked on by people, by society, as the judgment of God for a woman not to be able to bear children. Uh, in fact, down in verse 25, I think, um, when, when Elizabeth does fall pregnant, see what she says. She says, God has removed my reproach. She has been actively reproached by people. She has been looked down on in her society because she can't have kids. Imagine that life of that woman. Now, now on another note, there were lots of priests uh, in, the, in the day that we're looking at here. Uh, now, in Judah, there was probably something around, this is an estimate, something around 8,000 priests, right? And so what happens next in the story, uh, it might seem really insignificant to us, but it would have been actually enormously significant, especially to Zechariah. Uh, what, what happens here, uh, Zechariah gets picked by Lot to go and offer incense in the temple. This was a task that a priest could only do once in his entire life, and most priests never did. They, they were going to go into the, he was going to go on his own into the holy place, the bit just outside the Holy of Holies, and offer incense on the gold altar there uh, as, the, as a throng of the people prayed to God outside. This was the apex of his career. And as he stands there in the temple, something unbelievable happens. Something incredible happens. An angel appears. 
Gabriel, in fact. Now, if you're not familiar with Gabriel, Gabriel happens to also be the angel who five or six hundred years earlier appeared to Daniel. Uh, so this guy's been around for a while and he is a significant angel. And, uh, and in the presence of just this one man, the prophetic silence of those 400 years is just shattered and left on the ground. Uh, it, the word of God arrives in the messenger angel of God. And he tells him that his barren old wife, they're old, we may not have mentioned that yet, his barren old wife is going to have a son. And not just any son, a prophet with the power of Elijah. Are you hearing some echoes from something we read earlier on? That great prophet, Elijah, who called down the fire uh, on, the, on, the, on the altar in front of the prophets of Baal. Do you remember that one? Yeah, him. He's going to have the prophet, uh, the, the power of Elijah, and he will call the people of Israel to repentance. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and many will turn back to God on the account of this son. Reconciliation is going to happen at that most basic of levels in families as fathers are turned to their sons and sons to their fathers. Uh, but, but better than all of this, the angel tells him, he is the one who was foretold by Malachi. He doesn't say those words specifically. He says he's the prophet who prepares the way for the Lord. He will go before him. He's preparing the way for that rising of the son of righteousness. He's the one who prepares the way for God himself to come down. These are big words. And how does Zechariah respond? He doesn't believe it. <laughs> I mean, in some ways you could say, how could you blame him? But, but, but really, he, he responds with, how can I know this? Those are the words we get there. Really, he's saying, my wife and I, we're really old. I, 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 don't, I don't think this is possible, really, what, what we're talking about here. All due respect, God, I don't think you've considered the variables here. Uh, <laughs> If this is going to happen, I need some evidence. I need some hard evidence that this is going to happen. Give me a sign, God. Can you feel, I'm, I'm, this is, this is non-canonical, I'm, I'm assuming this into the text, so take that in mind. Can you feel the tension, the, 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 the silent, awkward moment that happens between verse 18 and verse 19 there? I like, to, I like to imagine it being just a long old pause. You know, fiery angel of God appears. <laughs> And, uh, and makes his great announcement of joy to Zechariah. You're going to have a son in your old age. You're going to be blessed with a son. He's going to be a great prophet. And by the way, he's leading the way for God himself to come down. Woo! You know, I just did that into a microphone. Zechariah <laughs> goes, oh, yeah, good, I, I guess. Um, can you offer me some evidence? Is there a sign that might confirm this, maybe? And, and like... Um, Imagine Gabriel. I know we can't imagine Gabriel. We don't know what an angel looks like. But like, like a, a, a fiery angel dude, right? And he's standing there and he... You would... A sign? But... Hey, angel! Fire! Wait, what? What? And, and, and the awkward silence gets broken when a Gabriel gets his word ba words back together. He goes, I am Gabriel! I stand in the presence of God! And I came down here to your little temple <laughs> to deliver this message of good news to you. And so Zechariah does get his sign, funnily enough. Uh, God doesn't give it to him. He'll be unable to speak until the day that the child is born. Uh, 
And why is he unable to speak though? This is, this is the, the really significant part here. Why is he unable to speak? Because he didn't believe the promise that was given to him. Zechariah is disciplined because he, he didn't believe, he, because of his unbelief. So Zechariah comes out of the temple. The people realize he's had a vision uh, and, and no one really knows what to do with this whole situation. So I suppose he heads home and, and he, he goes home. And, and evidently he has learned his lesson at this point, right? Um, we don't get explicitly the, the functioning of this thing, have we? But um, uh, Elizabeth falls pregnant. You know, he, he goes along with the plan. What I mean, uh, and and just before the story of Mary begins, we get this little tiny note. Uh, it's a side note, but it's a significant note. Elizabeth rejoices at having uh, a baby at last. Now, isn't that beautiful? That that moment of change, that transformation that God brings. But she also she keeps the pregnancy quiet for five months. We read, and we don't get specifically why she does that. We don't get told that information. If you go to commentaries, they'll either say she kept the pregnancy quiet for five months and then they'll continue on like that explains it. Uh, or, or they'll say, we don't know uh, if they're being honest. Uh, but, you know, may, maybe maybe she was doing it in a sense of worship, you know, saying it would be wrong for me to flaunt this wonderful gift of God. I'm going to rejoice in this privately first. Maybe. I don't know. It, it's not really that important. We don't get given it. But whatever the reason, what we should notice is how amazingly intricate God's timing is, God's sovereignty over the plan is. This woman makes the choice of her own volition, her own reasons to conceal the God-given pregnancy. And she decides, you know, five months maybe, that should be an appropriate amount of time. And it just so happens that in the sixth month, sixth month is when the angel comes to Mary and makes the proclamation, you're going to bear the son of God. And, and at that point, that means that this is still a fresh revelation. This is still something that has just happened for Mary. You know, her relative, Elizabeth, has just come out and said, check it out, baby bump, I'm 80. Uh, <laughs> we don't get a specific age, but we could guess. Uh, but but it's, it's just happened, but it's also visible. It's also something she can look at and go, look, God does do impossible things right there, you know. And so isn't, isn't like just, just God's hand of timing over this whole thing is remarkable. God's sovereignty over every detail of the world is just undeniable when you look at Scripture. And so now we come to the story of Gabriel coming to Mary, story number two. Right? But isn't there this sharp contrast between the two people here, Mary and Zechariah? Zechariah is a priest. We already know this. I'm just going to rehash the information we have on him. He, he works out of the temple, which is the center of worship in the nation of Israel, uh, Judea. Uh, he is a known godly man. He, the, the, the temple is in Jerusalem. He works in the city that is the center of the nation of Israel as well. A uh, known godly man who on the day that the angel arrives has just reached the apex of his career as a priest. This, this is the moment for him. He's, he's leading the people of, of Israel in corporate worship in a way that he has never done before and never will do again. It's a, an amazing moment for him of blessing from God. Mary, Mary's a virgin. There weren't a lot of people groups in, in Judea in this day that were more marginalized than the young single woman. Mary lives in Nazareth in the region of Galilee. 
basically, to, to cut a long story short, a nowhere town in the region of Judea that everyone else in Judea looks down on for being the kind of rubbish guys, you know? Sort of the, no, I won't. I, won't. I was going to connect it to somewhere on York Peninsula, but no, what, no matter what I do, it'll be controversial. Uh, you can just guess where I was going to go. Uh, <laughs> we do find out one thing. Her fiancé, uh, David, uh, uh, David Joseph, is in the line of David. Um, which is, which is significant because, you know, remember, we just heard that John is in the line of the great priest, Aaron. Uh, and now we and now here comes the family, you know, the, the one in the line of the priest is going to lead the way for God's coming. Oh, look, here's a baby in the line of the king. That's significant. But aside from that, Mary's just so different. And that's really something about Joseph, not about Mary. Mary's so different to Zechariah. And the, and the difference between the promises that they received, that Zechariah received and Mary received, is huge as well in kind of the opposite proportion. Zechariah received news of a great miracle, but it wasn't a great miracle without precedent, if you know your Old Testament. Zechariah was a priest. He would have been familiar with the story of, say, Sarah, who in her old age was uh, bore Isaac, thus starting the nation of Israel. He would have been familiar with the story of Hannah, who was barren, and yet God gave her a child. Now, that's, that's significant. He had precedent, and he would have known that precedent as a priest. But imagine being in Mary's situation. I'm sorry, I let my imagination get off the hook a bit on this one. Um, we, we, we don't get to find out what exactly she was up to, but probably um, probably that's because there was nothing particularly going on for Mary at the time. You know, she was at home. We could imagine if we will. Mary's just got out of bed. She's in her pyjamas. Yeah, the hair's everywhere. Um, and, and, and maybe she's just, just toasting that first toast, slice of toast for the day. And because this is before toasters are invented, she's, she's holding a little, I don't know what they would, piece of metal above the fire with a piece of bread on it. And just at that moment, she's looking at, at it from the side, right? And she's, she's having that moment of, is that burning or is that just browning? I can't tell. And boom, the angel arrives. <laughs> you know, it's like a, a, a trivial enough moment that it didn't warrant mentioning, probably because Mary forgot what moment it was at. And Mary the Virgin receives unprecedented news. She's going to fall pregnant. The Son is the Son of God. He will be called the Son of the Most High. He will take up the throne of his father David, his ancestor David, and of his reign, there will be no end. Yeah, toast ruined, by the way. But, but imagine this situation for her. The, the great one who's been anticipated since the promises were made to, to Abraham and to David, really since the very beginning, since the creation of the world has been anticipated, the coming of this man, you're going to give birth to him, Mary. And Mary doesn't say how can I believe that? In response, she asks, how's that going to work? She wants some details. She's not doubting that God can do it. She wants to, to, be, to be a part of this plan and to understand how this plan is going to work. And I, I don't know about you, but I probably would have had more questions after, after Gabriel's answer there. The Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you with the power of God. 
Oh, good. Well, that, that covers it then, doesn't it? No, uh, <laughs> but notice, even though she believes, God still reassures her with a sign, doesn't he? He still gives her something to look to. He gives her Elizabeth. He says, look, your, your, your relative Elizabeth, she's in the sixth month, who was called barren. And in response to all of this, Mary believes and so submits herself to God. And to, to wrap up the story for now, we get this account of Mary going and seeing Elizabeth because now that her pregnancy, the, the pregnancy of Elizabeth, is the sign of what God's doing, understandably, Mary wants to go and see for herself. And she receives the confirmation of the Spirit speaking through Elizabeth and praising God for what's happening in Mary and for the, the fact that Mary believed what God had told her. She believed the promise that's specifically affirmed by Elizabeth here. So at this point in the story, Jesus is coming. In fact, Jesus is already here, but, he, but he's inside, you know. Uh, <laughs> the most unbelievable reality. God the Son has come down in the most vulnerable of ways, in, in the, as the unborn infant in the womb of a virgin in a backwater town of Israel. God's plan is inexorably working out in just the most unexpected ways possible, isn't it? Like, like think about if you heard this for the first time. I know we hear it kind of annually at least. But for the first time, Jesus is coming down and being the baby of a virgin in Nazareth, which is how they would have said it then, but in more of a Greek or Jewish sort of way, uh, in Galilee. Like if I was in Brisbane, I'd say, he's coming to Logan. Oh, he's been to Brisbane. Or even the Gold Coast, I don't know. Like, uh, and, and, and do you see the, the emphasis in what we have here, though, between these two stories, the, the contrast that we get? The point that is being made that will be made over and over and over again throughout the Gospel of Luke about what the action of God calls us to do. Neither Mary nor Zechariah nor Elizabeth, they really couldn't have changed this plan. God just doesn't come and say, do this so that I can do this. He comes and says, this is going to happen now. They couldn't have made their sons holier or less holy. John is literally filled with the spirit of God from the womb. Jesus is Jesus. He's the son of God. <laughs> so, so they don't have control over this plan. The, the one call to them is believe the promise. Believe that God is able to bless you, even in this way, even in this great way, and live like you believe it. Live out that belief. It's a principle not just relevant, do you see, to Zechariah and to Mary, uh, but to, to, to all of us at every moment of our lives. Every person stands in need of the grace of God. Not one exception to that rule. Um, saved or unsaved, by the way. God does the work. God produces salvation and God promises us grace for every day, for every situation the difference between the life that God smiles upon and the life, uh, sorry, the life that he smiles upon, the, the life that is following him, the, uh, 
and, and the life that desperately needs change, it's not primarily moral actions. It's not whether you do the right things or say the right things. The primary difference that separates those who are smiled on by God, willing participants in the plan, unhindered recipients of grace, ultimately who receive saving grace, and those who are distant from God, resistant to the work of God, and hindered from receiving grace, and, and ultimately, though not in the case of Zechariah, who don't receive saving grace, the difference between those two is just this. Do you believe God's promise? Do you trust him? Do you live in accordance with that belief? When the good news of, of what God is doing comes to you, do you, like Mary, say, I'm, I'm a servant of the Lord? Yes, I believe you can do it. Or do you stand with Zechariah and say, I don't think God could do that, at least not through me. Or in Zechariah's case, my wife, I suppose, which just adds that little bit of extra offence, doesn't it? There's, there's, there's actually a lot of joy in the reality of what we're seeing here for, for everyone, right? Everyone who accepts it. Your greatest need is not something that you do, but something that God does willingly and lovingly for you. And you are called to believe. I want to apply this to us in, in two ways today. Uh, two ways that speak to two groups of people, because I think that what we see here is significant for literally everyone. Uh, I'm not limiting the group at all. There is never a moment when this principle, the significance of belief, becomes irrelevant to you. Uh, so the first, I want to speak to the unbeliever. And, and, and lest it should need to be said, we will never assume that there is not one in the room with us when we preach our sermons here at Gospel Church. Maybe you're someone who is still holding on to the world. Maybe, uh, maybe you just have not received the saving grace of God yet. There's a great promise here for you. The Bible puts it this way. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's from Romans. When Jesus died, he carried all of your sin and all of its punishment. Everything that you've done, all those things that you think keep you so far from God that he could never reach you. Jesus is bigger than those things. And, uh, and, and he demonstrated his decisive victory in the fact that he walked out of a grave after three days. People don't do that. Yet he demonstrated not only he defeated your sin, he defeated the great result of your sin, death, because he was alive, and he is alive. And he offers you freedom from your running, freedom from your rebelling, freedom from the consequences of your rebelling, freedom and joy forever with God. And his call to you is just this, believe. He says, trust me. You're not able, but I can do this. In fact, I have. If, that, if that's you, don't leave it. Don't, don't hang this by the side. Come and talk to me after church today. Talk to Matt. Talk to someone. Uh, we'll, we'll walk you through this. We'll pray with you. We'll, we'll point you towards Jesus because we need him too, right? It's, it's, it's not just you. Second, I wanna, we've spoken to the unbeliever. I want to speak to the unbelieving believer. Uh, 
What I mean by that is that you have seen, you've been saved by Jesus, certainly by the grace of Jesus. You have received saving grace through believing in him. And yet in the day-to-day stuff of life, you're still learning to trust that the promises of God are true for you. I, I want to be really clear. If you're someone who has received saving grace, that you, if you're a believer, this is you. Without exception. We, we're unbelievers, or unbelieving believers. If you don't believe me, then I'm believing me too, but, uh, but come, come and have a talk. But, but we all are people who fail to believe the promises of God in the day-to-day. Not always, not completely. We're growing, God willing, to be more like Jesus. But the very fact that we're growing states that we aren't there yet. And this is what Christian life is. If you don't think that you are an unbelieving believer, um, then you do. Come and chat to me afterwards. Uh, if, if you can convince me, then I'll step aside. You're the pastor of the church forever. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> but, but take in mind, one, one little caveat there, if you believe perfectly in all that God is, says, and does, you'd better have a perfect life to back that up. Uh, like like I, I don't mean righteous like Zechariah, righteous. I mean perfect in every single way. <laughs> because belief always precedes action and action always follows belief. You, you never sit down in a chair without first believing that the chair can take you. If you don't believe that the chair can take you, you don't sit down in it. <laughs> so, 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 so to we, if I've convinced you now, the unbelieving believers, I'd say this, Zechariah's disbelief is serious. It's significant and it's, it's treated seriously, but it's not the end for him. When God's people fail to be to believe the good news, there's grace for that. Grace to believe. In fact, a lot like Zechariah, we may reap the consequences of our unbelief in our day-to-day life. Uh, we may reap negative consequences when we fail to trust in the promises of God. But even then, we often find that God is teaching us to believe, like he taught Zechariah to believe. Notice, when, when Zechariah is just about to be able to speak again, what's, what's the thing he does? We don't, I don't think we get this in this story. It's in next week's. The first words uh, that he writes down on that tablet when, when, when Elizabeth is like, I want to call him John, and Zechariah, and they're like, that's not a family name, and they pass Zechariah a tablet to find out what he wants the name to be, and he's like, his name is John. I believe the promise now. This is what God said. This is what's going to happen because this is the guy that God said he's going to be. The angel said it. I believe it. So I want to say there's, there is a freedom for us to repent when we fail to believe. Sometimes we live like we need to kind of cover up the areas where we've failed as Christians. That's done. We've all done it. There's freedom to say, you know what, here's what God said is true about me and is true about what he's done. Here's how that should have affected me. And I haven't been believing it. God, help me. And with that in mind, uh, I want to I end today by bringing us to uh, three of the great promises of God from Scripture. There's more than this. Uh, these were just the ones I wanted to go for. And I want to call us to believe the truth of the promises uh, for ourselves in everyday life. So here's number one. Oh, here's my slide. Jesus says to you, I have cancelled your debt of sin by nailing it to the cross. 
It is dealt with. Are you still hiding your sin away like it isn't dealt with? Is, is there sin in your life that you hold up that you couldn't talk to another Christian about? I'm not saying you need to get up here and proclaim it to the whole church. But stuff that you, you can't go to a mature brother or sister and say, this is, this is serious sin in my life. Stuff that you treat like Jesus hasn't dealt with the guilt and the shame of. Is it there? He has. I have cancelled your debt of sin by nailing it to the cross. Believe. Promise number two. All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's very easy for us to acknowledge these words. We've probably heard them before, right? Great commission, the brackets around it. Uh, in Matthew 28. But, but then it's very easy, easy also for us to kind of deny them with our lives, to live like they're not true. Um, the king of the universe, this, this is an incredible reality. The king of the universe walks with you. He is with you always. When you go to the shops, I'm with you always. When you talk to that person that you don't like, I am with you always. When, when you struggle for sleep in the evening for the fears of what tomorrow is going to bring, behold, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me and I am with you always, the very end of the age. He's with you. Promise number three, surely I am coming soon. This world is fleeting. Jesus repeats these words like how many times? Three times? Yeah. In uh, Revelation 22. It says, I'm coming for you. I'm coming back. The world is fleeting compared to the eternal joy that is prepared for us. Jesus has won that joy for his people and it cannot be taken away. He's coming back. Do you trust him? Do you believe it? Do you live today in light of the fact that it's true? You know, let's, let's, let's bring this to the ground a bit. One day, none of the politics will matter. Don't invest your whole life in politics. One day, it's going to seem very insignificant and very distant. One day, none of the suffering will matter. In fact, in fact, uh, the Bible tells us it will seem like a light momentary affliction. I know there are people in this room who have suffered greatly. Joy is coming that is going to make any of it look small. One day, a moment of embarrassment won't seem significant. One day, a moment of stepping out on a limb will look like a good idea for what it's produced. None of the things of now will matter. Your car won't matter. Your tractors won't matter. Your house or lack thereof won't matter. Your money or lack thereof won't matter. One day, only the things that have been done for the sake of the salvation of others will actually seem significant to you. Only what's done following Jesus is going to matter one day. Do you believe that he's coming back? Do you believe the promises of God? Why don't I pray for us? Lord, uh, 
We want to come before you in a moment of confession. We believe, Lord, um, we who have been saved, we believe that Jesus saves us, and yet we unbelieve. We, we, we struggle with disbelief in our day-to-day lives. We don't live in accordance with the glorious, beautiful truth of the promises that you've poured out on us. We acknowledge with amazing joy, Lord, that you have done it, that the words Jesus said on that cross, it is finished, are true, that you have won for us the defeat of our sin, that you are with us day by day, indeed that the spirit even lives in us and that you are coming back. Help our unbelief, Lord. As we walk out of here today, even in this very moment right now, help our unbelief. As we walk our day-to-day lives, help our unbelief, Lord. Help us to believe what is good and true. The wonderful promises of God. Lord, change our lives through believing the truth. We pray it in the name of Jesus who has made it possible, who has moved us from death to life who came down as a, as a little unborn child in the virgin's womb. He died on the cross and rose again. Help our unbelief. Help us to live for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.